You're listening to The Herald, normally recorded by volunteers at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently being recorded from homes across Greater Glasgow. Please enjoy this week's articles. The Herald, Monday the 6th of June 2020, News. Agenda, why a four-day working week makes sense. This article is by John Gallagher. It's time for a four-day week. Surely COVID-19 reminds us how we can find solutions to big problems where we have to. A better world is possible if we embrace change. The four-day week is not such an outlandish change. Strathclyde University has adopted it throughout lockdown, urging staff to take a Friday rest day to give us all an opportunity to focus on our families, well-being and other personal responsibilities. Before COVID-19, Gothenburg's Toyota factory moved mechanics to a six-hour day. Far from making the company less competitive, output rose by 14% and profits by 25%. Sweden conducted a trial with care home nurses working six hours, five days a week. Nurses logged fewer sick hours, reported better health, it improved quality of care and research showed they improved their engagement with those they cared for. Public services unions in Reykjavik negotiated a four-hour reduced working week for 300 local authority employees. There was less sickness, improved employee satisfaction and no loss in productivity. It was extended to 2,200 workers. New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern suggests employers consider a four-day working week and other flexible working options to boost tourism using a four-day week to boost the economy. Clearly, shorter working hours brings happier, less stressed, committed workers who take less sick leave, but it also increases productivity, profit and output. UK industry, economy and society did not suffer when we moved to an eight-hour day or introduced the weekend. It was progress. We remained the workshop of the world and our economy and wealth grew. It made us healthier, stronger and richer. But the lesson from history is progress is not automatic. It's a struggle. We need to negotiate, bargain and campaign for it. And we are more open to radical ideas after great national upheavals like world wars or pandemics. There was a century between Robert Owen's utopian New Lanark Mill and the adoption of the eight-hour day after the First World War. Unison Scotland has taken the first steps, suggesting college staff work three hours less a week, moving from a 35 to a 32-hour week. Most of our members earn less than £25,000 per year. This change could bring huge benefits to staff, students and education more generally. The SNP National Conference recently agreed to consider a four-day week and it is official Labour Party policy and 62% of the British public support it, even though we have the longest working hours in Europe. A cross-party group of MPs have urged the UK government to explore a four-day week to aid the recovery from the coronavirus crisis as has the Scotland's Post-Covid-19 Futures Commission, to alleviate pressure on the unemployed, make more jobs available and set up for a better future. We are yet to understand the full consequences of this pandemic. We are staring at increases in unemployment and funding gaps for public services. Businesses must adapt to a new normal with social distancing. Countries with lower working hours have less of a carbon footprint and better health and well-being. No one can accuse Germany or Sweden of low productivity or weak economies. Surely a four-day week should be on the table. It's an idea whose time has come. Trade unions have always led the campaign for better work-life balance. Who else will lead this agenda? John Gallagher is Unison Scotland's Head of Bargaining. This article is by John Gallagher.
Herald Scotland, recorded on Monday 6th of July 2020. Arts and Entertainments. Books, M. John Harrison at his strange and unsettling best by Richard Strachan. Although most often billed as a sci-fi writer, M. John Harrison's work is far too various for easy categorisation, encompassing as it does satirical space opera The Centauri Device, the urban fantasy of the Viriconium sequence and the more conventional mountaineering novel Climbers. The Sunken Land Begin to Rise Again, his first novel since 2012, might seem similarly conventional on the surface, with its contemporary setting, its mild and approachable characters, but beneath this veneer of normality lurks one of the strangest and most unsettling novels of the year. The book follows two characters equally submerged in directionless low-key middle-life crises or breakdowns. Shaw in his 50s finds himself renting a room in a boarding house in southwest London. He starts a casual relationship with Victoria, whose mother has recently died and left her a large house in Shropshire. Shaw finds an IT job working for Tim, who has an office on a houseboat in Barnes where he curates the Waterhouse, a cryptic conspiracy theory website, and from where he self-publishes an obscure scientific tract called The Journey of Our Genes. Tim sends Shaw on strange assignments around the country to report in a bizarre court case where the defendant claims to have seen a green childlike creature which possessed the qualities of both a fetus and a fully formed organism in a pub toilet or to visit a medium who falls into a trance when she holds Shaw's hand. At the same time in Shropshire, Victoria finds her new surroundings unsettling. Strange figures are glimpsed in the edges of local woodland near the Severn River. Disembodied voices call incomprehensibly from nearby streets. Workmen and chance acquaintances make gnomic statements and press battered copies of Charles Kingsley's twee Victorian morality tale The Water Babies into her hands. She also strikes up a relationship with a cafe owner who she sees disappear into a pool. In an affectless, disordered way, both Victoria and Shaw find themselves tangentially connected to an inexplicable and never-elucidated conspiracy about human mutation or hyper-evolution, or the possible existence of an entirely separate aquatic human species. At one point, as Shaw baffled leafs through a printout of material from the Waterhouse website, Tim excitedly notes connections that seem to have no causal relationship. In the end, Tim says, is logic in any sense the right method to be applying here? As all this might demonstrate, this is a novel of such weird and brooding opacity that it's almost hard to describe what it's actually about in the first place. It has all the lucid certainty of a dream, and I don't think I've ever read something shot through with such a monetary sense of dread and unease. As Tim acknowledges, though, logic and causality are not the key to unlocking this novel's meaning, and Harrison's real achievement here is in holding out the possibility of an explanation that always seems to slither away at the last moment. As Shaw and Victoria stumble in their apathetic way through the drowned ruins of their respective lives, they're similarly on the cusp of an elusive understanding. Neither character feels compelled to chase these mysteries down though, if mysteries they truly are, and it's this sense of meditative rather than reactive disquiet that gives the book its real force and power. If fiction's greatest achievement is in affecting the way the reader sees the world, then Harrison's spare and beautiful prose has conjured up here a feeling of almost permanent dislocation from the routines of everyday life. Even when the book has been closed, it's a feeling that's incredibly hard to shake off. By Richard Strachan Recorded from the Herald, 6th of July 2020 Judge rules the SFA must arbitrate Hart's Partick Thistle dispute with the SPFL.
James Kearney. The legal case against the SPFL brought to the Court of Session by Hearts and Partick Thistle is to be arbitrated by the Scottish FA, the Court has ruled. Lord Clark, who presided over proceedings in Edinburgh, dismissed the request put forward by Dundee United, Wraith Rovers and Cove Rangers representative for the case to be dismissed altogether. But Lord Clark ruled that the matter must be decided by the SFA's judicial panel as per the SPFL Articles of Association, citing Article 99, which states that members cannot raise legal proceedings without the express permission of the SFA. In addition, Lord Clark granted the motion from Hearts, Partick Thistle, for documents related to the dispute to be uncovered before the case is heard by the independent panel, arguing that the tribunal should be given full and proper disclosure. Both Hearts and Thistle believe that the controversy surrounding Dundee's vote then the 2019-2020 season requires further scrutiny. More to follow. You're listening to The Herald Scotland, recorded on Monday the 6th of July 2020. Opinion by Teddy Jimison, Senior Features Writer. Too cool to wear a mask? Get over yourself. Have you found yourself embarrassed wearing your mask to the shop yet? Yes? Me too. Ridiculous, isn't it? And yet, last week my long-suffering car finally gave up the ghost and I had to look into getting a new one. At the car dealers, I noticed no one else was wearing a mask. The second time I went there, I didn't bother either. To be fair, my mask was in my dead car, but even so, that's not really an excuse. I guess I just didn't want to feel conspicuous. On reflection, that's not a particularly sensible reason. Embarrassment isn't on a par with getting or giving the virus, but there it is. Which is why I'm all in favour of the mandatory wearing of masks in shops in Scotland that starts at the end of this week. If it's the norm, then there will be no social pressure not to wear them. And yes, you shouldn't give in to such pressures, but people do. I know I did. There are other reasons you might not wear a mask, of course. In the United States, in part because of President Trump's refusal to wear one as a result of his infantile narcissism, it's become a political issue. Not helpful in a country that is in no sense getting to grips with the virus. It is also mostly a guy problem. Academic research has found that men are more likely not to wear a mask than women. Reasons cited include that it's shameful, not cool, and a sign of weakness. A sign of weakness? Man, how fragile is the male ego? There have even been suggestions that masks should be designed that specifically appeal to alpha males. Really, the simple fact is this shouldn't be seen as a statement of masculinity or otherwise. It's a public safety issue. It should be as uncontroversial as wearing a hard hat on a building site or a life jacket on a fishing boat. Unfortunately, a tranche of political leaders who seem to feel that their masculinity is performative, you know the kind of thing, doing press-ups, lifting their glass of water with one hand and expecting praise for it, have rather undermined that message. Hopefully, 
In time though, mask wearing will become the norm. A standardised activity that will help, or at least certainly not hinder us, in dealing with a pandemic that has killed tens of thousands across the UK. Who knows, it might even become cool. You can buy a Kendrick Lamar mask from Redbubble if that helps. This article was by Terry Jimison. You are listening to the Health Scotland recorded on Monday 6th of July 2020. Take a good look at the Tories who support English independence because it is Scotland's story too. An opinion article by Mark Smith, feature writer. A new opinion poll has shown that half of Conservative voters in England support English independence. But tell us something we don't know. English Tories supporting English independence is about as surprising as Scottish nationalists supporting Scottish independence. In many ways, they come from the same source and feel the same feelings. The only problem in both England and Scotland is what on earth anti-nationalists can do about it. What the new poll by YouGov has shown us is that 49% of Conservative voters in England now support English independence. It also shows that in the general population in England, support for independence is at 35%, which is interesting because that's broadly where support for Scottish independence was in Scotland 10 years ago. In other words, this could be the beginning of a new trend in England. Who knows? In other ways, the poll is only confirming what we know already. The highest support for nationalism and independence in England comes from voters who lean to the right, whereas in Scotland it generally comes from the left. But that doesn't mean we're dealing with completely different beasts here. Far from it. There are striking similarities between the instincts of some English Tories and Scottish nationalists, and they help explain two things. Why the parties behave as they do, and why there is a large group of voters they struggle to reach. In the case of the Conservative Party, English Tories, like Scottish Nationalists, have always possessed a strong sense of national identity, sometimes romantic, sometimes bellicose. At party conferences, Tories are unselfconscious about bellowing out land of hope and glory in the way that Scottish nationalists are unselfconscious about Flower of Scotland. The leaders of the Tory party have also always known the power of English iconography. Stanley Baldwin used to talk about the tinkle of the hammer on the anvil and the call of the corncrake on a dewy morning. Just as SNP leaders know the power for some, of tartan and bagpipes. Politically, Tory leaders, again like leaders of the SNP, have also always been aware of the usefulness of national identity. We'll talk about its limits later. Disraeli said he had always considered that the Tory party was the National Party of England. And a few years later, leading Tories set up the Patriotic Association with a weekly paper called England. Some 150 years later, Boris Johnson tapped into exactly the same English patriotism 
to fuel support for the campaign to leave the European Union, just as the SNP taps into Scottish patriotism to fuel support for leaving the UK. The leadership of both the Tories and the SNP are also aware of the trick, because it works for some people, of using national identity to denigrate their opponents as un-English, un-Scottish, unpatriotic or un-something else. Disraeli said liberalism's aim was to effect the disintegration of the Empire of England, whereas the leadership of the SNP frequently accuse their opponents of failing to stand up for Scotland or doing it down. It's all the same kind of stuff, really, whether it's English or Scottish or British. Nationalism as a stirrer of intense passions and a political recruiter. But it only goes so far, because not everyone is stirred by nationalistic sentiments. Some hearts soar, but some hearts sink. And that poses a problem for politicians of a nationalistic bent. Strident types of English or Scottish nationalism have always been unattractive to many Liberals and voters who occupy the crucial centre ground, the kind that the SNP in particular needs to recruit. More recently, some of the more Liberal Tory leaders have also struggled. In 2014, for example, Alex Salmon showed no shame or embarrassment in his patriotism and nationalism. While for David Cameron, it was all a bit squirmy and awkward. What's happening is that all of this creates issues for centrist politicians who oppose nationalism, like Cameron in 2014 or Keir Starmer in 2020, particularly when, in all its forms, nationalism appears to be on the rise. However, it also poses problems for English Tories and Scottish nationalists who seek to exploit it. And it may explain why support for Brexit and Scottish independence both hover around 50% but not much higher. Take Nicola Sturgeon for example. She knows that sounding stridently nationalistic will attract some Scots to her cause. But she also knows that sounding too nationalistic could turn off the centrists she needs to win over. Keir Starmer has a similar problem for Labour, only in a different direction. He knows that sounding more obviously patriotic could win back some of the support from English nationalists who've gone over to the Tories, particularly in the north of England. But he also knows that if he goes too far he risks losing support from centrists, particularly in London and, crucially, Scotland. To make matters worse in Scotland, there's another problem here, which is that English nationalism may also be fueling Scottish nationalism or at least support for the SNP. The most recent poll at the weekend confirmed support for independence at around 51% and support for the SNP high enough to win them another election. And much of this has been fuelled by Brexit, which in turn has been fuelled by English nationalism. The question is, how resilient the centre will be in the face of all of this? Clearly some of the centre ground in Scotland is being eaten away by the SNP. And in a UK context, it's left Labour in particular with a dilemma. 
On English nationalism, one of the solutions that the party's election review considers is tacking to the centre on economic policy while talking up the party's patriotic credentials. The push and pull of nationalism and unionism is also the reason Labour has been talking about the idea of radical federalism. But will it be enough? The fear for centrists must be that as English nationalism closes in on one side and Scottish nationalism closes in on the other, like the walls of the trash compactor in Star Wars, the centre will get squished. In a constitutionally eccentric country like the UK, it's also unclear what the centrists can do. One option is to sound more nationalistic, but that may hasten the crushing. The other is to continue to call for another way. But as the walls close in, they may not be heard over the noise. The Herald, Monday the 6th of June 2020, News. Divisive broadcaster Neil Oliver steps down as National Trust for Scotland President. This article is by Martin Williams. Neil Oliver is stepping down as President of the National Trust for Scotland more than two years after nearly 200 quit the Heritage Group over the appointment of the broadcaster described as divisive and pro-union. The historian, archaeologist, author and TV presenter who was appointed by the National Trust for Scotland in October 2017 is notorious amongst hardcore nationalists for describing the uncertainty caused by the prospect of a second referendum as a cancerous presence and describing Alex Salmond as a round wrecking ball of a man shaped only to do damage. The TV presenter was also heavily criticised last week after sister paper The National revealed that he had liked an anti-Black Lives Matter tweet. He will leave his post in September. Mr Oliver says he has always planned to do no more than a three-year stint as head of the organisation. It comes days after the charity was forced to issue a statement over his alleged admiration of disgraced historian Dr David Starkey. The NTS said last week that Mr Oliver's apparent public support came before the historian Dr Starkey was stripped of numerous positions following comments he made about slavery on an online radio show. Dr Starkey, who rose to prominence in the early 2000s for his writing and documentaries on Tudor politics, argued in an interview that slavery cannot be considered genocide because otherwise there wouldn't be so many damn blacks in Africa or in Britain. Last Monday, Mr Oliver responded to a post from former Brexit campaigner Darren Grimes promoting an interview with Dr Starkey writing Tell him I love him by all means. It was in that broadcast interview which came after Mr Oliver's comments that Mr Starkey claimed slavery was not genocide because so many damn blacks survived. NTS condemned Mr Starkey's offensive comments about slavery, but on Mr Oliver, the organisation said, when stating his personal views, as in these recent cases, he is not representing the trust. Renfrewshire-born Mr Oliver, who was described as divisive by senior SNP members for his well-known pro-union anti-independence views, was chosen to replace Lord Lindsay at the helm of the conservation charity at the trust's AGM in Dundee's Caird Hall in January 2008. Chairman Sir Moyer Lockhead said the choice was of someone who had spent much of his adult life championing Scotland and its heritage. The Trust later confirmed 170 had quit the Trust, citing Mr Oliver as the reason but was set against a membership of around 380,000. In a statement, 
Mr Oliver said, my three-year term as president comes to an end in September and as I had intended, I will be stepping down from the role at this time. It's been a complete privilege to work throughout the term and represent the Trust. I will look forward to seeing who replaces me in October and they will have my full support. NTS received 350 to 400 complaints in the days after the appointment of the broadcaster, but the Trust said about 95% were from non-members or people with otherwise no connection to the charity. A petition opposing Mr Oliver's appointment, because he does not have the Scottish people and Scotland's interest at heart, was signed by more than 8,300 so far. The broadcaster who wrote an article in May 2017, in which she referred to the independence referendum as a hate fest, stated that subsequent criticism of his appointment was water off a duck's back and only coming from anonymous commentators. And he insisted the National Trust for Scotland had not asked him to steer clear of controversy and refrain from commenting on Scottish politics during his tenure in the role. Commenting on Oliver's announcement that he will stand down, NTS Chairman Sir Mark Jones said, Throughout his busy career as a broadcaster and author, Neil has championed Scotland and its heritage and we are extremely grateful to him for giving up so much of his valuable time to represent the Trust. Since his appointment in 2017, he has striven to promote our work and achievements and in doing so elicited support on our behalf from many generous donors. In 2017, the TV presenter, best known as a presenter of several BBC documentary series, including A History of Scotland, Vikings and Coast, revealed he quit using social media after being subjected to vicious abuse from pro-independent supporters. He deleted his Twitter account after being bombarded with hate-filled messages after he spoke out in favour of the union. This article is by Martin Williams. Herald Scotland recorded on Tuesday 7th of July 2020. Jesse McFarlane Parker examines dual Scottish Cornish identity in blood and water. If you want a fresh look at what it means to be Scottish, you could do worse than ask a Cornish woman. More particularly, the 22-year-old writer Jesse McFarlane Parker, whose pamphlet Blood and Water delves into what it means to feel rooted to two places at once. The unusualness of this essayist memoir adds to its intrigue. Here we have a Cornish writer dissecting multifaceted Scottish identity through the prism of personal experience via a Cornish publisher, Scriffa, to... McFarlane Parker is upfront about it, no doubt about it, I'm Cornish, brackets, with a good helping of Scottish, close brackets, I've lived my entire life in Bodmin Moor, understand the most impenetrable of accents, and have genuine pasty withdrawals. Scotland, as people, landscape, traditions, literature, music and food have always been a part of my life and will never cease to be, yet my time spent up north is always as a tourist, never a local. So what qualifies her to throw insights or perspectives in her direction? One response may be that every nation is and always has been more complex in its makeup than it often admits. But more than that, McFarlane Parker comes at her subject with the benefit of being simultaneously an outsider and insider. Daughter of a Cornish father and a Scottish mother who traces her ancestry to the same plot of Scottish turf over centuries, she says, most of us have a rough idea of where our great-grandparents came from or even our great-great-grandparents, though few can easily say that they know further than that. But I can. I'm able to locate my family to a small island, Inchcaliach, on Loch Lomond. Her writing is never less than poetic, with water serving as the metaphor. 
Cornwall may be synonymous with the sea, seafaring, fishing and a people almost mythically attached to the water, but McFarlane Parker attributes as much of her love affair with water to time spent swimming and floating in Loch Lomond. And it runs deep, as her mother tells her, our identity is like a body of water. We have all these streams that feed into it, and the further back you go in your history, the smaller they get, becoming just trickles, but they all meet to create you, the loch. This could easily be the point at which a critical memoir retreats into indulgent family story, but the writer is quick to locate her observations in a world in which migration, for whatever reason, love, curiosity, family, the need for work or for refuge, transcends so many borders. In a Scotland that seeks to secure a reputation as outward-looking and inclusive, the diaspora is the mainstream. She is alert as well to the paradoxes of birthright and nationality, noting that if the outcome of the 2014 independence referendum had been different, whilst it would have been easy for me to become a Scottish citizen, achieving a similar status might have proved a challenge for someone who had lived there for a long time but originated from overseas. It still troubles me how this can the case. Our claims to place are so varied and unequal. That imperative to test out claims to place and nationality permeates the pamphlet and it attests to its clarity that she distills so much into 54 pages. There's no drift towards sentimentality either as she confronts the prospect of interrogating your own past. No one wants to find out they are described from a slave owner, nor do they want the pain of knowing an ancestor was gassed in a Nazi death camp. Digging around in documents and DNA can uncover all sorts of shame, sadness or shock. That said, it's a necessary step. In the process, McFarlane Parker unpicks the legacy of attitudes to race, gypsies, Romanies and ethnicity that are rarely far from the surface of political debate or general society. In times when populist leaders are polarising and resegregating societies from Europe to the US while hauling up their national drawbridges, her voice is a timely reminder of their antidote. She observes, it occurs to me that it also has the power to separate us. It can allow us to argue that someone from across a natural or man-made border is somehow other. The emphasis here is how we can overcome that. As she's keen to note, water may be a great divider, but is also the source of renewal, movement and wonder. Blood and Water is available for £5 from Scrifa, brackets www.scrifa.com, close brackets, by Lizzie Flint. Recorded from the Herald, 7th of July 2020. New Dundee United boss Mickey Mellon doesn't know SPFL, but he does know how to manage. James Morgan. Do you know what the problem is with the oft-parted idea that managers who don't know Scottish football will fail? The existence of all the managers who know Scottish football and don't succeed. It's a suggestion that has been levelled at Dundee United in recent days as they seek to appoint Mickey Mellon as Robbie Nielsen's successor. The argument goes, Mellon may be Scottish, but what does he really know about the game up here? At the weekend, John Collins and Derek Ferguson told the BBC there are a number of other Scottish coaches who could do the job. And yet, the counter-argument is that some of the same names that are perennially linked to positions, such as the vacant seat at Tannadice, tend to self-perpetuate. In other words, these same people have demonstrated themselves incapable of achieving anything other than par despite knowing Scottish football. Before anyone starts getting defensive, that's not just an assessment of the respective talents of the managers available, it is also a mathematical reality. Not everyone is going to win things. 
Reticence among United fans is understandable. They remember the failed Ivan Golak experience. The Crow, Crow arrived on Tayside, the surprise choice to replace the legendary Jim McLean in the summer of 1993 as a fledgling manager with a year's experience at Partizan Belgrade and a handful of games at lowly Turkey United. It was believed he could provide some continental noir and for the first season at least when a Scottish Cup victory was secured following a memorable 1-0 over Rangers, he appeared to be the man for the job. However, a season later, he was culpable for relegation during a miserable campaign in which United won just nine of their 36 matches. The memory still makes United fans shudder. But they will also remember how Jackie McNamara and Mixu Patilian, two men who had plenty of knowledge of Scottish football, combined to take down United down in 2016. The main observation is that arriving as a novice is no barrier to success. There are countless examples from global football. Sir Alex Ferguson seemed to do all right in England with it previously in the league. So too did Jose Marino, despite during two spells at Chelsea and at Inter Milan. Ditto Steve McLaren, who last week turned United down at Twint and Schede, where he won the Eredivisie. Closer to home, the recent examples at Kilmarnock and Hearts demonstrate the benefit of going for a safe option, but for every Daniel Stendhal or Angelo Alesso, there is a counterpoint. Kenny Shields didn't know the league when he arrived at Kilmarnock in 2011 and subsequently won a League Cup, following a memorable win over Celtic in his first season. His subsequent time in charge was less spectacular, but he gave supporters of the Rugby Park Club an afternoon at Hamden, some would have only experienced once before, and some young fans not at all. Brendan Rodgers wasn't exactly a devotee of Scottish football either, but he seemed to do okay for himself at Celtic, and therein is the rub. He can make the argument fit either way, because in reality, the success of an appointment comes down to a number of factors, the most important of which is the same for any business. You have to appoint the right person. No, Mellon hasn't been around the Scottish game since working on the ground staff at Hearts as a teenager, but he understands how to win football matches and does know England's lower leagues, which has become something of the supermarket of choice for Scottish Premiership teams. Take Motherwell, third in the season just ended. The bulk of Stephen Robinson's starting 11 were signed from clubs either Skybet League 1 or 2. The Northern Irishman himself had no previous experience of Scottish football. Furthermore, he has not even had the modicum of the admittedly relative success that Mellon has enjoyed. There are cliches that sometimes attach themselves to football, but that have no grounding in reality, but one that is time served holds the very essence to the secret of being a successful manager. Good communication. If you can identify with players from the off, then the chances are that you will prosper. Gareth McCauley once told me that he knew Pepe Mel's days at West Bromwich Albion were numbered after five minutes of the Spaniard being introduced to the squad. Mel appointed in January 2014 at the Hawthorns, stood up before his new players and said hello before handing over to a translator, who laid out Mel's vision for the team. Macaulay said he lost the dressing room the minute he sat down and passed his authority over to someone else. In the end, Mel lasted just 123 days in charge. In contrast, Mel's biggest asset is his motivational and management skills, so he should be fine on that score. Those who have worked with him also attest he is an excellent coach who has a history of improving players, notably Jamie Vardy, whom he signed for Fleetwood Town in 2011 and sold to Leicester City for £1.7 million. He also has a habit of improving the teams he is in charge of. 
At Fleetwood, he earned the club two promotions in three seasons from Conference North and then the National League. He achieved similar success at Shrewsbury Town, securing their return to League One at the first attempt while guiding the club into the fourth round of the League Cup and fifth round of the FA Cup. While the club he was set to leave, Tranmere Rovers, were relegated on the points-per-game method last month. It was harsh to say the least, and while they were clearly at the wrong end of the table, it was a blemish against Mellon's name that probably would not have been there but for COVID-19. More's the pity since it halted a successful run with the Merseyside club that brought back-to-back promotions. No, Mellon might not be particularly au fait with, for example, the inner workings of Ross County's new management structure or the camber of the Fir Park pitch, but then he doesn't need to be. One look at the cast of thousands serving roles at Tannadice, where you'll find a sporting director, a head of recruitment, a head of talent ID and recruitment, a head of player pathways and loans, a head of tactical performance and a head of technical performance and a head of performance data and analysis, tells you that. Rather than not having one iota of what is going on in Scottish football, Mellon's biggest challenge might be filtering out information overload. You're listening to the Herald Scotland, recorded on Tuesday the 7th of July 2020. Opinion by Andrew McKee We can afford to stand up to China more, and we should. Six months, almost to the day, since China recorded its first death from COVID-19, the country now presents us with a case of bubonic plague. Its earlier contributions, such as paper and the compass, which it came up with 23 centuries ago, uh, movable type and even gunpowder, which followed about a thousand years ago, had greater crowd-pleasing potential. Despite our tendency to come up with labels such as Spanish flu, however, it's hardly fair to attribute responsibility for diseases to the places where they happen to pop up in. In any case, the really unhealthy thing about China, and the one that should alarm the West, is in the body politic. The recent actions of its government, which include the new national security law in Hong Kong, its illegal incursion and military engagement in the Galwan River Valley in India, and its systematic rounding up of Uyghur Muslims, more than a million of whom have been put in concentration camps in what the UN says amounts to genocide, ought to be a reminder that the despotic communist regime remains wedded to the principle outlined by Mao Zedong that, quote, political power grows out of the barrel of a gun, unquote. In the case of Hong Kong, you could hardly get a more obvious example of the regime's authoritarian instincts as well as a blithe disregard for the legal undertakings it gave before the handover, which promised that there would be no change in the law for at least 50 years, and that the territory's special status would be maintained. Instead, the new law essentially makes it a criminal offence to argue for democracy, and makes a free press impossible. Already there has been the removal from libraries of books on liberty. It is greatly to the discredit of Western democracies that for the past 30 years or so there has been little attempt to draw attention to, let alone challenge, this repulsive dictatorship. We don't seem even to be able to resist the imposition of a mobile phone network that may well be compromised by the Chinese security services, which have a stellar track record of spying on their own population and restricting their access to information. 
It's not just that since the Tiananmen Square massacre of 1989, in which thousands died, we've largely ignored the oppression of the Chinese people by their government. After all, despite a few token protests when their president tips up, we've ignored the plight of illegally occupied Tibet for almost seven decades, and Taiwan, which practically no Western nation, the Vatican being an honourable exception, officially recognises, and which we won't even admit to the UN in case Beijing gets huffy. It's that we appear to have convinced ourselves that because China has embraced aspects of capitalism and become much more affluent in recent decades, that we can just forget about the fact that it's still a dictatorship, as tyrannical as that other People's Republic in North Korea, which is the country's only official ally. That may have something to do with the fact that prosperity and freedom seem to be related, with very few exceptions. Saudi Arabia is an obvious example. Liberty, along with property rights and the rule of law, seems to be a requirement for a sustained and successful economy. Command economies, even when they have enormous natural advantages, as Venezuela and Zimbabwe did, tend to go bust after enslaving and immiserizing their citizens. And China, despite the skyscrapers of Shanghai and the world's largest number of billionaires, is not quite the economic success it might appear. It may have embraced commerce, it is the world's largest exporter and second largest importer, but no free trade. Its financial gains are slightly less stellar than its position as the world's second largest economy by nominal GDP, and the speed of its growth, consistently above 6%, might suggest. And it's certainly not evenly distributed. The middle class may number around 400 million, but the country has 1.4 billion citizens and an awful lot of debt. In per capita output, China is still a middle-income nation, ranked somewhere between 67th and 82nd of around 180, depending on how you measure it, behind such powerhouses such as Gabon, Suriname and the Dominican Republic. By contrast, Macau, Hong Kong and Singapore are all in the top 10 by almost every estimation. In the past two decades, according to the Heritage Foundation, China has added about $13 trillion to its GDP, which sounds impressive. But in the same time, the United States added about $11 trillion to its, with a population less than one-fifth the size and with much lower levels of growth. None of this, naturally, alters the fact that, quite apart from being one of the world's oldest and greatest cultures, China is the world's most populous country third or fourth biggest, one of its most significant military powers and probably the only place that really rivals the US. These are all reasons why no one, and particularly not the UK, is going to start kicking the Chinese around. But it does provide some cause to question the orthodox opinion that it is about to overtake America as a superpower, that the two are in some form of new Cold War or that it, as opposed to, say, India, is bound to dominate the next century. Its undoubted importance, even if you're just talking about size, 
is certainly no reason why we should let it kick us around with impunity. We're obviously not going to attack it, and nor, I imagine, is the US. Field Marshal Montgomery's second rule of war was not to take on land armies in China. Number one was, don't march on Moscow. Nor are we going to ignore it as a producer or a market, but we shouldn't be afraid to criticise the regime for its human rights record, to call it the dictatorship it is, or to abandon the people of Hong Kong. It would be nice if we did that out of moral conviction, but there are plenty of arguments for not kowtowing to Beijing for self-interested reasons too. This article was by Andrew McKee. You are listening to the Health Scotland recorded on Monday 6th of July 2020. Take a good look at the Tories who support English independence because it is Scotland's story too. An opinion article by Mark Smith, feature writer. A new opinion poll has shown that half of Conservative voters in England support English independence. But tell us something we don't know. English Tories supporting English independence is about as surprising as Scottish nationalists supporting Scottish independence. In many ways, they come from the same source and feel the same feelings. The only problem in both England and Scotland is what on earth anti-nationalists can do about it. What the new poll by YouGov has shown us is that 49% of Conservative voters in England now support English independence. It also shows that in the general population in England, support for independence is at 35%, which is interesting because that's broadly where support for Scottish independence was in Scotland 10 years ago. In other words, this could be the beginning of a new trend in England. Who knows? In other ways, the poll is only confirming what we know already. The highest support for nationalism and independence in England comes from voters who lean to the right, whereas in Scotland it generally comes from the left. But that doesn't mean we're dealing with completely different beasts here. Far from it. There are striking similarities between the instincts of some English Tories and Scottish nationalists, and they help explain two things. Why the parties behave as they do, and why there is a large group of voters they struggle to reach. In the case of the Conservative Party, English Tories, like Scottish Nationalists, have always possessed a strong sense of national identity, sometimes romantic, sometimes bellicose. At party conferences, Tories are unselfconscious about bellowing out land of hope and glory in the way that Scottish nationalists are unselfconscious about Flower of Scotland. The leaders of the Tory party have also always known the power of English iconography. Stanley Baldwin used to talk about the tinkle of the hammer on the anvil and the call of the corncrake on a dewy morning. Just as SNP leaders know the power for some, of tartan and bagpipes. Politically, Tory leaders, again like leaders of the SNP, have also always been aware of the usefulness of national identity. We'll talk about its limits later. 
Disraeli said he had always considered that the Tory party was the National Party of England. And a few years later, leading Tories set up the Patriotic Association with a weekly paper called England. Some 150 years later, Boris Johnson tapped into exactly the same English patriotism to fuel support for the campaign to leave the European Union, just as the SNP taps into Scottish patriotism to fuel support for leaving the UK. The leadership of both the Tories and the SNP are also aware of the trick, because it works for some people, of using national identity to denigrate their opponents as un-English, un-Scottish, unpatriotic or un-something else. Disraeli said liberalism's aim was to effect the disintegration of the Empire of England, whereas the leadership of the SNP frequently accused their opponents of failing to stand up for Scotland or doing it down. It's all the same kind of stuff, really. Whether it's English or Scottish or British, nationalism as a stirrer of intense passions and a political recruiter. But it only goes so far because not everyone is stirred by nationalistic sentiments. Some hearts soar, but some hearts sink, and that poses a problem for politicians of a nationalistic bent. Strident types of English or Scottish nationalism have always been unattractive to many Liberals and voters who occupy the crucial centre ground, the kind that the SNP in particular needs to recruit. More recently, some of the more liberal Tory leaders have also struggled. In 2014, for example, Alex Salmon showed no shame or embarrassment in his patriotism and nationalism. While for David Cameron, it was all a bit squirmy and awkward. What's happening is that all of this creates issues for centrist politicians who oppose nationalism, like Cameron in 2014 or Keir Starmer in 2020 particularly when, in all its forms, nationalism appears to be on the rise. However, it also poses problems for English Tories and Scottish nationalists who seek to exploit it. And it may explain why support for Brexit and Scottish independence both hover around 50%, but not much higher. Take Nicola Sturgeon, for example. She knows that sounding stridently nationalistic will attract some Scots to her cause. But she also knows that sounding too nationalistic could turn off the centrists she needs to win over. Keir Starmer has a similar problem for Labour, only in a different direction. He knows that sounding more obviously patriotic could win back some of the support from English nationalists who've gone over to the Tories, particularly in the north of England. But he also knows that if he goes too far, he risks losing support from centrists, particularly in London and, crucially, Scotland. To make matters worse in Scotland, there's another problem here, which is that English nationalism may also be fueling Scottish nationalism, or at least support for the SNP. The most recent poll at the weekend confirmed support for independence at around 51% and support for the SNP high enough to win them another election. And much of this has been fuelled by Brexit, which in turn has been fuelled by English nationalism.
The question is, how resilient the centre will be in the face of all of this? Clearly, some of the centre ground in Scotland is being eaten away by the SNP. And in a UK context, it's left Labour in particular with a dilemma. On English nationalism, one of the solutions that the party's election review considers is tacking to the centre on economic policy while talking up the party's patriotic credentials. The push and pull of nationalism and unionism is also the reason Labour has been talking about the idea of radical federalism. But will it be enough? The fear for centrists must be that as English nationalism closes in on one side and Scottish nationalism closes in on the other, like the walls of the trash compactor in Star Wars, the centre will get squished. In a constitutionally eccentric country like the UK, it's also unclear what the centrists can do. One option is to sound more nationalistic, but that may hasten the crushing. The other is to continue to call for another way. But as the walls close in, they may not be heard over the noise. The Herald, Wednesday the 8th of July 2020, News. Salmond Inquiry writes to Nicola Sturgeon and others seeking detailed evidence. This article is by Alistair Grant. A Holyrood inquiry into the Alex Salmond affair has issued letters to Nicola Sturgeon, her husband and several other key players requesting answers to a string of questions. The First Minister has been asked to outline when she was first made aware of an internal investigation into her predecessor, what action she took and the extent of her involvement, if any, in the decision to refer complaints to the police. Meanwhile, her husband Peter Murrell, Chief Executive of the SNP, has been asked to hand over all relevant party communications relating to the internal Scottish Government's complaints. He has also been asked to provide the inquiry with details of when he first became aware of the internal complaints against Mr Salmond and who informed him, as well as any discussions or communications he had with ministers or special advisers. MSPs on the inquiry are now looking at how the Scottish Government botched a misconduct probe into Mr Salmond and left taxpayers with a £500,000 legal bill. They have already decided witnesses will be required to take an oath. Now they have published 13 letters sent to key players requesting written evidence with a response required by August the 4th. This will allow the Committee on the Scottish Government Handling of Harassment Complaints to start taking oral evidence in mid-August. The inquiry's focus is the Scottish Government's in-house probe into two complaints of sexual misconduct against Mr Salmond in 2018 by two female civil servants. After these became public in August that year, Mr Salmon resigned from the SNP before launching a crowdfunded judicial review at the Court of Session to have the probe's findings struck down. In January 2019, the government admitted in court its probe had been unfair, unlawful and tainted by apparent bias because the investigating officer was in prior contact with the complainants, leaving taxpayers with a £500,000 bill for Mr Salmon's legal costs. It emerged Ms Sturgeon maintained contact with Mr Salmond while he was being investigated by her officials, leading to accusations she broke the Scottish Ministerial Code. Now a Holyrood committee will examine how the government probe was bungled, the judicial review and whether Ms Sturgeon's behaviour broke the code. The letter to Ms Sturgeon published on the Scottish Parliament's website requests copies of all communications relevant to its remit between the First Minister and Mr Salmond, her Chief of Staff, his former Chief of Staff or senior civil servants. 
It also seeks details of all relevant communications with the SNP given your dual roles as First Minister and as the leader of the SNP. It adds, this includes all communication relevant to its remit relating to the complaints against Alex Salmond under the procedure on handling of harassment complaints involving current or former ministers. It says the committee is focusing partly on the culture within the Scottish Government between 2008 and 2014, when Mr Salmond was First Minister and on to the present. The letter adds, The committee requests details and any other relevant correspondence from this period on the culture within the Scottish Government. Meanwhile, the letter to Mr Salmond seeks a full chronological account of the complaints handling process from his perspective. MSPs want to establish who first informed the former First Minister of the existence of complaints, when he was informed and the level of detail shared. The committee said it is also interested in all contacts since then between yourself and Scottish Government officials, as well as all contact with ministers. The letter adds, The committee also requests a list of all those you discussed the details of the complaints with during this period, including details of any requests you made for people to support you, including to act as intermediaries. The inquiry wants Mr Salmon's full account of the judicial review and copies of all relevant documents he holds. It also asked him for all communication with the SNP related to the internal Scottish Government complaints made against him. Referring again to the culture of the government, the letter asks for Mr Salmon's perspective on the safeguards in place for staff, how supported he considers staff would have felt and what could have been done differently. Elsewhere, Mr Murrell has also asked for details of your first awareness of presence at or contributions to any meetings between two or more of the following. The First Minister, the First Minister's Chief of Staff, Liz Lloyd, the former First Minister, Alex Salmond, and the former First Minister's former Chief of Staff, Jeff Aberdeen. The inquiry also wrote to Ms Lloyd, seeking relevant communications and other details. Further letters have been sent to Mr Aberdeen, Deputy First Minister John Swinney, Lord Advocate James Wolfe, Union Leaders and former Permanent Secretary Sir Peter Housden and Sir John Elvidge. The latter two have been asked about the outcome of any staff surveys seeking views on the incidences of bullying and harassment as well as the level of complaints made under previous policies. Mr Salmond was cleared of multiple charges of sexual assault earlier this year after a trial at the High Court in Edinburgh. The former First Minister's allies have suggested he was the victim of a politically motivated plot to destroy him. Ms Sturgeon has dismissed this as a heap of nonsense. This article is by Alistair Grant. Herald Scotland, recorded on Wednesday 8th of July 2020. The young Gothic crime writer making a mark. Francine Toon, Bloody Scotland Award-nominated author of Highland Set Chiller, Pine by Barry Didcock, senior features writer. All first-time novelists dream of making a splash, few do, which makes Francine Toon's arrival in the UK literary scene all the more notable. Last month, the 33-year-old Scot picked up not one but two nominations in the prestigious Bloody Scotland Awards, the prizes awarded by the annual crime writing festival of the same name and designed to recognise the best of what these days we know to call tartan noir. Her novel Pine was one of four shortlisted for the debut Scottish Crime Book of the Year, but it was the only one of the quartet to also find its way onto the long list for the McIlvanny Prize, named in honour of the late William McIlvanny, the so-called godfather of tartan noir. 
Pine was only published in February, which means it was barely out of the traps when Toon went into lockdown. Her day job was continued to an extent. She's a commissioning editor at London-based publisher Scepter, but like the rest of us, she emerges into a very changed world, which in her case includes the promise of literary stardom in the offing. The twin accolades from bloody Scotland have delighted her, she says, but there may be an element of surprise too. One newspaper reviewer described Pine as a twilight ghost story and a literary gothic thriller to chill the marrow. And though it turns in the disappearance of a teenage girl from a rural community in the Highlands is viewed through the eyes of 10-year-old protagonist Lauren, there's no denying that the novel's predominant flavour comes from its strong supernatural elements. This is a world in which ghostly female figures in white lurk by roadsides. Stone circles appear in bedrooms. Memories of even recent events appear nebulous and shifting, and the brooding woods dominate everything. I would say it's a gothic suspenseful mystery novel that's also about growing up in father-daughter relationships, says Toon when I ask her to describe Pine. I think I definitely wanted to write something that was unravelling a mystery and getting to the heart of something dark in a small community. I love reading those kind of books and I wanted to write something in that way and I think with the father-daughter relationships I hadn't set out to write that but I really liked having two contrasting characters, a small girl and a taciturn grown man. They were two different perspectives I enjoyed playing off against each other. So how well does the novel sit within her understanding of the tartan noir genre? In my head it was blending different genres and influences, but I've always loved crime fiction and I've always wanted to tell a story about a crime and a teenage girl who disappears. I'm a big crime fiction reader and I also listened to a lot of true crime podcasts when I was writing the book, so I was really pleased that it was acknowledged for having that crime element that I wanted to bring into it. But I realise it's not your traditional crime book, but then I suppose Tartan Noir can be a bit broader than just a police procedural. Toon's evocation of place is as important to Pine as the characters she creates to populate the surrounds of Strathorn, the fictitious town around which the events take place. It's an evocation based on first-hand experience. Although born in England, Toon moved to Clashmore near Dornoch, aged nine, and lived there until she was eleven. Toon's father worked in hotel management and was employed at the Royal Marine Hotel in Brora. And though the family later moved to St Andrews where Toon spent her teenage years, she returned regularly to Clashmore for holidays until she was into her late teens. A poet whose work has appeared in several collections, Toon always knew her heart was in fiction so when it came time to put pen to paper for that first long form effort, it was to Clashmore in her childhood there that her imagination turned. When I was a child in Sutherland, I just had so much freedom, she recalls. It was really great. In some ways, it did feel like quite an old-fashioned childhood in that there were less safety concerns. My parents could just let me run wild round woods and fields, and I think that made a real big impression on me. And especially living in this big forest, Clashmore Wood, which I knew really well. That just stayed in my imagination, and I thought I wanted to write about that particular place. Obviously my life wasn't exactly the same as Lorne's, but I think I chose a character of that age because I was that age I when I was living there. But while the all-important woods of Strathorn are based closely in Clashmore Wood, Strathorn itself is based only somewhat on Clashmore. Moreover, Toon was careful not to base any characters on real people. 
The home that Lauren lives in is a bit exaggerated, but it was based in the outline of the house I lived in for a while, and I just thought of the different types of characters you might get there. I think that because of something to do with the landscape you get, outsiders and people who are into new age practices, so that was an interesting thing to explore as well. People don't really associate that with the Highlands, they associate it more with tartan and tablet and that sort of stuff. Maybe it's because there's so much folklore and it's such a beautiful natural landscape that you find people there who are outsiders and who can find their own way of living on the edges of society. That certainly describes Lorne, her guitar playing odd job man father Neil and her henna haired new age mother Christine. Christine disappeared when Lauren was a baby leaving behind only a single photograph, her own mother's book of folklore and dark spells and a swirl of vicious rumour that results in Lauren and her father being viewed with suspicion in the village. When strange things start to happen in and around Lorne's house and then Lorne's teenage friend and occasional babysitter Anne-Marie disappears, she and her father are further enveloped in rumour, gossip and mystery. Toon wrote Pine mostly at her home in London. How did the fact of being so far removed from the place in which the book is set affect the writing of it? When you're in one place it's hard to imagine the other exists because they're so different from each other, she admits. But having been in London for quite a lot of time, 10 years, it was really helpful for me and I enjoyed remembering and trying to feel a sense of connection with the place I'd grown up in and with Scotland. When I'm in London it can feel very far away, so there's almost a sense of homesickness to it. She did wangle a writing week in a cottage in Dunoon, however, and made several research trips to Clashmore to make sure she had some of the finer details correct. Like what time it grows dark in the autumn and winter, when exactly the trees shed their leaves, and importantly, what the landscape looks and feels like around Halloween, which is when the novel begins. With its beguiling ten-year-old protagonist in a vocative rural setting, Pine seems ready-made for cinema or television. Toon admits there have been some preliminary skirmishes in that regard, meetings with interested parties, in other words, but nothing concrete has yet been proposed. In the meantime, work continues in novel number two, another semi-autobiographic tale set partly in Fife and partly in the capital. Brackets Toon studied at Edinburgh University before landing her first publishing job at the city's historic chambers firm. Close brackets. It'll have suspense and mystery and it'll follow a teenage girl, she says. I just want to write about places I've lived in and know well. It just feels like it comes more naturally to write about them. In terms of the novel's overall feel, however, expect more of the same. Being in London has made realise how gothic Scotland can be, says Toon. A lot of people ask me why I chose to write a gothic novel, but it just comes with the territory. Pine is out now, brackets, double day, £12.99, close brackets, by Barry Didcock. Recorded from the Herald, 8th of July 2020. Scottish transfer news as it happened. Celtic and Rangers' pursuit of Ivan Tony latest and Hibbs' update on Canberry. Aidan Smith, from Tuesday the July 7th. 11.16am. Good morning everyone and welcome to today's transfer blog. We'll bring you the latest news and gossip as soon as we get it. 11.31am. Hibbs' update on Canberry. Jack Ross has given a transfer update on former Rangers' loanee Florian Canberra. Speaking to Sky, he said, He's traded with us from day one and that's probably it. I think there will be continued dialogue with that to find a solution that suits both parties, but at the moment he's training with the group. Is it fair to say he won't play for me? I don't think I would ever be as blunt as that because 
from experience, football can move and shift in every different, in very different ways. But at the moment, I'm planning for the season with players that will absolutely be here and just trying to prepare as best as I can for the opening game, especially as we start to move hopefully to friendly matches. 12.03pm. Ivan Tony transfer promise. Rangers and Celtic-linked Ivan Tony will reportedly be granted a summer departure by Peterborough United. The striker wanted to leave the posh in January, but the club refused to sanction any move. And now Dir- director Barry Fry has told us, has told how that decision could backfire. Speaking to the Peterborough Telegraph, he said, Ivan wanted to leave once he became aware of interest from higher level clubs. He asked me if he could leave. He asked the chairman and he asked the manager. His agents were pushing as well. And fair play to the club's owners as they turned down Ivan's request because they did not want to shortchange the fans as letting him go would have meant giving up on promotion. And fair play to Ivan as well because although he must have been disappointed, he still turned up for training every day with a smile on his face and he gave everything he had for the club in training and in matches. His attitude before, during and after the transfer window never changed. He's a very professional young man and he thoroughly deserved a big move. We promised him we would let him go if we didn't reach the championship and we will stick to our word. Our stance might backfire on us a little with the fee we receive, but we remain confident it won't. 12.17pm. St Mirren signed Sharon. St Mirren have completed the signing of Nathan Sharon on loan from Fleetwood Town. Speaking after his move, he said... I've had nothing but good vibes from the club and it's a really exciting time for myself. I got off the phone with the gaffer and he really sold the club to me. It was brilliant and I'm really looking forward to working with him. I'm a defensive midfielder. I'll work hard, I'll get myself stuck in and put up a fight. 2.05pm. Double signing for Rangers. Rangers have completed the double signing of Sam Kerr and Kirsty Howitt. The pair make the switch to Ibrox from Glasgow City where they were both key figures for Scott Booth's side. Howitt was top goal scorer in the SWPL1 last year with 24 goals and will join the Light Blues in 2021 after signing a pre-contract agreement. Kerr has already er earned full international honours for Scotland, making her international debut against Ukraine in Spain in 2020. 3.19pm, Ferguson on Katic. Barry Ferguson reckons Stephen Gerrard will dip his hand into the transfer market to find a replacement for Nico Katic after a serious injury. The Croatian defender limped off the training park with suspected cruciate ligament damage, leaving Gerrard with just three senior centre-backs. And Ferguson reckons Gerrard need cover. Speaking on PLZ Soccer, it is a big blow first and foremost for Katic. To have no football for the last three months and then come on in pre-season training and you're buzzing. And to then get a cruciate ligament injury, it'll be a tough one to take. It isn't as long a road as it was a number of years ago. You can be back within five or six months now, but he's going to miss a big part of the season. I would imagine the manager would dip into the transfer market to get a centre half. He has four vying for two places and competition is always good. So don't be surprised if Rangers go out and try to get another centre back in. 3.57pm. Mellon takes first session. Mickey Mellon took charge of his first training session as Dundee United manager this morning. The former Tranmere boss joined the Terrors yesterday after Robbie Nelson departed to join Hearts. 
4.06pm. That's all we have time for in today's blog. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back tomorrow with the latest from our Rennes Scotland's clubs. You are listening to The Hill Scotland recorded on Wednesday the 8th of July 2020. There is method to the madness of spend, spend, spend. An opinion article by Ian McWhorter, political editor. Modern monetary theory sounds like a pretty boring module in a university economics course. In fact, it is becoming the leading economic theory on the left and has largely replaced Marxism for this generation of radicals. Advocates include Democrat Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the economist Stephanie Kelton, and the Labour-supporting tax specialist Richard Murphy. It may be that the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, has also become a devotee of this theory, which says governments can spend public money without having to worry about debt. He's in the hole for £300 billion because of Covid and has seen the UK debt pile rise to nearly £2 trillion. He borrowed a record £62 billion in April alone. But he doesn't sound all that worried and will be adding to it today in his summer statement. Modern monetarists believe that the traditional view of government finance that it has to raise tax revenue to pay for services like the NHS, is wrong. Governments can spend on anything they want by printing money or borrowing. Just think of a number, print it, and you're off to the races. Roger Malcolm Mitchell's MMT book Free Money sums it up. So what if Britain's debt has rocketed to more than 100% of GDP? Doesn't matter. Japan has public debt of 250% of GDP and seems to be surviving. An independent Scotland shouldn't bother about debt either, so long as it has control of its currency, because it can just print Scottish pounds to pay for it. It sounds crazy, like Zimbabwean economics, and ultimately modern monetary theory is a reductio ad absurdum. Fiat money has no intrinsic value. So if you just increase the volume of it without generating equivalent wealth, then its value will tend to reduce to nothing. As in Weimar, Germany, where people need wheelbarrows to collect wages. However, there is method to MMT madness. It contains an important kernel of truth, that government spending, given low inflation does not need to be financed by tax revenue. The traditional Thatcherite view that you can only spend what you can afford is back to front. If the state spends to get the economy moving in a recession, the debt effectively finances itself by generating future taxation from the people newly employed. This was what John Maynard Keynes, really the grandfather of MMT, argued during the Great Depression. If governments spend money on, say, arms production, the people employed in these factories go on to pay for goods and services from elsewhere in the private sector, 
food, clothing, housing and so on. This creates more private sector jobs through the so-called multiplier effect. Thus, a pound spent by the government generates more pounds in future by stimulating economic activity. So long as there is less than full employment, government should spend whatever it takes to get the economy running at full capacity. They could even pay people to dig holes and fill them in again. Yes, it's a kind of free lunch argument and has been much criticised by conventional economists, including the European Central Bank, who believe excessive government spending debases the currency, distorts the market and leads to financial collapse, Greek style. Environmentalists don't like the emphasis on growth. What has made Keynesianism or MMT so plausible recently is that many central banks have been printing money like there's no tomorrow since 2010 and so far prices have remained stable and the roof has not fallen in. In the UK, the Bank of England has created an astonishing £645 billion through quantitative easing, buying government debt. Conservatives like Boris Johnson hardly radical leftists, are increasingly seeing debt as a good thing, or at any rate, nothing to worry about. In order to keep his red wall gains intact, Mr Johnson has promised to build, build, build. Right now, interest rates are near zero, so there seems little reason to forego spending. And that's precisely what Mr Sunak has been doing. In sheer volume terms, he has spent more rapidly than any government in British history, mostly paying for furloughed employees. Paying private sector wages goes beyond what modern monetary theorists advocate. It is more in the style of old-fashioned Marxists who wanted the state to take over the economy entirely. MMTers don't want to nationalise the means of production. Of course, common sense says public spending can't increase indefinitely. What about the interest on government debt? Surely that has to be paid. The UK currently spends £39 billion a year on debt interest, more than on defence. Modern monetarists like Richard Murphy say the government should simply print more money to pay this, which it can do up to a point. However, most government debt is owned by private pension funds and institutional investors or by foreign banks and financiers. In the long term, if the government paid its debts in worthless printed pounds, they'd soon stop lending. But in the long run, says Keynes, we're all dead. The Bank of England has printed hundreds of billions in QE since 2010 and financiers are still falling over themselves to lend. Indeed, they're effectively lending at zero interest and getting nothing for their money. Mr Sunak will promise that Britain's debts will be paid. He has to say that because free money sounds irresponsible. But he's likely to keep borrowing and spending because it is politically the sensible thing to do to avert a Covid depression. People on the left are puzzled by this. Why is a Tory politician adopting the economics of Bernie Sanders? Well, it might be worth mentioning that one of the main founders of MMT was a hedge fund manager and tax exile, Warren Mosler, 
in the 1990s. MMT is not a particularly left-wing idea, nor is public debt. The former Republican Vice President Dick Cheney said in 2001 that deficits don't matter. Republican presidents like Ronald Reagan and George Bush massively increased US public debt. It has been Democrats like Barack Obama and Bill Clinton who are sweated to reduce deficits. Donald Trump has ramped up more debt than any US government in history, $26 trillion, and is about to borrow $3 trillion more. Strangely, this makes the orange man the unlikely king of monetary modernity. You're listening to The Herald Scotland, recorded on Wednesday the 9th of July 2020. Opinion by Nicola Love, Assistant News Editor. Saving the arts crown jewels is not enough for the music scene. I don't know how many times I have stood underneath the Barrowlands disco ball, but it's definitely more than a hundred. Not all gigs were created equal, but the venue has always been special. It's the only place in the world I won't turn my nose up at a lukewarm pint of tenants. One of my favourite nights was about six years ago, when Biffy Clyro did a three-night stint, playing two albums in full each night. The steps leading up to the ballroom are still emblazoned with the band's lyrics as a result of those nights. Tickets were gold dust, and any pal who had managed to wangle their way onto the guest list was treated with a mixture of suspicion and envy. But we all got in somehow, and honestly it felt like the closest I will get to experiencing magic. And after that gig, a group of friends and I trudged up from the East End to Socky Hall Street to see another band who were playing at midnight in broadcast. A couple of hundred of us piled down into the basement there, and honestly, that was its own wee slice of magic too. Biffy Clyro didn't start with six nights at the Barrowland. They didn't come out headlining Reading and Leeds, or even selling out King Tut's. They came up slogging on the local circuit, as most do. In the case of Biffy, those early gigs are now bragging rights. I was there when, followed by some jammy so-and-so, who saw them at the 13th note in 1999. But if those venues hadn't been there, what would have become of the band? If these tiny, sweaty, dive-bar basements disappeared, where'd the bands go? Where do you find the festival headliners 20 years from now? Or the good ones, at least. The UK government's culture secretary talked about how this week's cash boost will save the crown jewel venues. It may well do that, but if we're not careful, we risk losing the roads that lead to them. Because it's not those crown jewels which nurture acts on their way up, it's the wee gems that do that. Scotland's grassroots venues are fiercely loved. Just look at the crowdfunding campaign for the sub-club, which raised more than £100,000 in less than 10 hours. But we can't let the future of these venues rest on crowdfunding campaigns. The appetite to save the arts in Scotland is encouraging, 
But the funding has to be used to save more than just the headline acts. Because the demise of grassroots venues doesn't bear thinking about. If these venues are allowed to die, think of the talent and opportunity that goes with them. It cannot be an option. This article was by Nicola Love. Herald, Thursday the 9th of July 2020. News. MOD to give Scottish troops permanent tax refund of up to £2,200. This article is by Hannah Roger. Military staff are to be given a permanent income tax repayment if they are based in Scotland. The Ministry of Defence announced today that the current arrangement where military personnel are reimbursed for the additional income tax they pay if based in Scotland would be made permanent. It will see more than 7,000 serving personnel earning £28,443 or more, given an average of £850 a year indefinitely. Actual payments to troops who pay income tax in Scotland, regardless of where they are serving, will vary between £12 and £2,200, with the latest payments being made retrospectively in June 2021. The mitigation measures were brought in two years ago as concerns were raised about the higher rate of income tax in Scotland, deterring troops from being based there. Minister of State for Defence Baroness Goldie said, Our armed forces serve the whole of the UK, so it is only right that they are treated equally and fairly wherever they are based. We want to reassure our brave troops that they won't be penalised for simply doing their duty by having to pay higher taxes in a certain part of the UK and they will be properly compensated in their payslips each year. Secretary of State for Scotland Alistair Jack MP said Westminster was protecting servicemen and women from the Scottish Government's taxes. He said the UK's armed forces make a huge contribution to Scottish communities and our economy. I welcome the UK Government decision to permanently protect them from the Scottish Government's decision to make Scotland the highest taxed part of the UK. The professionalism, dedication and bravery of our servicemen and women can be seen throughout Scotland, the whole of the UK and across the globe, not least through their tireless work to support the UK-wide effort to combat the coronavirus pandemic. This article is by Hannah Roger. Herald Scotland recorded on Thursday 9th of July 2020. The Language of Flowers by Odessa Beggy by Susan Swarbrick, columnist and senior features writer. The Language of Flowers, Odessa Beggy, brackets Harper Design, £25, close brackets. The use of flowers and floral arrangements to send coded messages is a practice dating back thousands of years and across civilizations, found within literature, the decorative arts, religion and economics. Floriography, or the language of flowers, became hugely popular in the Victorian era as a covert way to convey emotions. This fascinating subject matter is explored by artist and author Odessa Beggy in her beautifully illustrated and newly published compendium. If you're a fan of adult colouring books, you may be familiar with Beggy's past titles such as Little Birds, Edgar Allan Poe and Jingle Bell's Christmas Carol. Or perhaps you have her work hanging in your home. The Kansas City-based illustrator also designs eye-catching wallpaper. Covering 50 of the world's most popular flowers, each entry is accompanied with a mixture of botanical lore, literary excerpts and anecdotal gems. We learn that a rose-coloured acacia represents friendship, while the white variety is a nod to elegance and in yellow means a concealed or secret love. 
A lotus denotes silence. Lavender equates to distrust, and hydrangea suggests boastfulness. Magnolia is synonymous with perseverance. Honeysuckle, that of devoted love, and oleander warns beware. Scotland's national flower, the thistle, has its own section, where Beggy talks about how it came to earn a potent symbolism, intrusion. This is one that predates Victorian times considerably, attributed by the author to a popular Scottish legend from the 15th century, where the Danes, attempting to attack these shores under the cloak of darkness, moved barefoot to muffle their advance. A cluster of thistles caused the unshod soldiers to cry out in surprise and pain, alerting the sleeping Scottish forces. The thistle was adopted as the national insignia, representing protection and bravery. In 1470, King James III of Scotland decreed it should be engraved on coins. According to Beggy, like sunflowers and artichokes, thistles are entirely edible, however, depending on the state of growth, they may not be very palatable. By Susan Swarbrick Recorded from the Herald, 9th of July, 2020. Scottish transfer news as it happened. Stoke enter race for Celtic target. Hibs boss hints at Canberry exit. James Kearney, from the 8th of July. 10.40am, morning all. Stay tuned and we'll get going with all the latest news and whispers from around Scottish football. 10.46am. Stoke City poised to sign David Marshall. If Celtic want to make their move for their former keeper, then they will have to get a move on. According to the Scottish Sun, the 35-year-old has been offered a deal by Stoke City. 10.52am. Ross hints at Camberry exit. Florian Camberry has inched closer to the exit door at Easter Road, with manager Jack Ross speaking coyly about the Swiss striker's future. The 25-year-old spent the second half of last season on loan at Rangers and has been heavily linked with a return to Ibrox. I don't think I would ever be so blunt as that, saying he won't play for Hibs again, because from experience football can move and shift in different ways, but at the moment I'm planning around the players who will absolutely be here for the opening game. That's especially true as we start to move ever closer, hopefully, to friendly matches. I don't think any challenges would necessarily just be attributed to his comments. You need to make sure you have a group who are fully involved in what you're trying to do at the club. If you don't have that, then you have to find a solution that suits everybody. We're working towards that at the moment. Jack Ross 11am. Goodwin sees himself in a new signing. Yesterday, St Mirren completed a season-long loan deal for the 22-year-old Fleetwood Town midfielder Nathan Sharon. Speaking to the media, Buddy's manager, Jim Goodwin, said he reckons the fans will love the defensive midfielder and that he can see a little bit of himself in him. He really enjoys that defensive role, which is something you don't see too much of these days. A lot of youngsters are desperate to get on the ball at all, all the time, whereas Nathan will do the dogged side. I suppose you could say he's quite similar to I was. He's had a similar start to his career as me. When he was at Liverpool, he was a centre-half, but soon realised he wasn't going to be big enough, so he moved into the holding midfield role, just as I did when I left Celtic. And he's got that defensive instinct. Jim Goodwin. 11.05am. Stoke City linked with Turnbull. Stoke City are at it. Not only are they said to be going in for Marshall, but there are rumours that they could make a move for Motherwell midfielder David Turnbull. The 20-year-old saw a £3 million move to Celtic collapse last summer 
after a knee issue was discovered during his medical, which led to Turnbull getting preventative surgery. He made a couple of first-team appearances before the season was curtailed and is said to be on Michael O'Neill's wish list. 11.23am Woodman has right mentality for Celtic. It's no secret that Neil Lennon is in the market for a goalkeeper this summer and with Newcastle apparently keen to loan out Freddie Woodman, it looks like something could happen here. The 23-year-old previously spent a year on loan at Rugby Park, impressing Kelly's goalkeeper coach so much that he is certain the Newcastle United goalie could handle the step up to Celtic. Having been here before, he will know what to expect if he does go to Celtic, and that should help him settle quickly. Rangers and Celtic are massive clubs and sometimes people can handle it and sometimes they can't because of the expectations and what is demanded of them to win week in week out from the fans and everyone else. If Celtic do come in for him then I think that Freddie has the temperament to handle it. You need to have a strong mentality and Freddie has that no doubt about it. Billy Thompson 11.31am Doohan to County one club who will be hoping Celtic sign a goalkeeper soon are Ross County, who we understand are interested in arranging a loan move for Ross Doohan. The 22-year-old has spent the last two seasons on loan at Air United, but with Fraser Forster heading back to Southampton and Craig Gordon joining Hearts, Neil Lennon currently has few options in the goalkeeping department. We understand that the Highland club will make their approach for Doohan once Lennon adds another goalkeeper to his squad. 11.57am. Kettlewell wants new deal for Stuart. More news from the Highlands. County manager Stuart Kettlewell wants to get 22-year-old striker Ross Stewart tied to the club on a longer deal after an impressive debut campaign in the top flight and is optimistic about his chances. The forward season was interrupted by a hamstring injury, but Stuart still finished the campaign with 11 goals in all competitions. The boy comes in every single day focused on what he does. He doesn't have a mindset of being somewhere else. I have spoken to him about his situation and the fact he is linked with clubs on a weekly basis. You ask him and he will tell you he loves playing football here. He loves the environment, the dressing room and the challenges of playing for Ross County. He has no intention of looking elsewhere. Stuart Kettlewell speaking to the Daily Record. 1.10pm Rangers unveil new crest. Not a transfer story this one, but certainly something that fans of the Ibrox club will be interested in. Rangers have unveiled a new club crest in a glitzy video narrated by legendary John Greig. 2.15pm Rangers make move for Kambari. Some news that fans of Rangers and Hibs will be wanting to hear. Rangers have offered a loan swap deal where Florian Kambari will return to Ibrox with midfielder Greg Doherty moving in the other direction. 3.20pm Kilmarnock seal Pinnock move. Over in Ayrshire, Kelly have completed their second signing of the summer window after snapping up former Wimbledon winger Mitch Pinnock. Speaking of the deal, manager Alex Dyer outlined his hope that Pinnock will give his side an additional dimension out on the wing. I hope Mitch can give us some quality in the wide areas in terms of delivering good crosses as well as scoring goals. He's someone who will get up and down the pitch and work hard for the team and give us additional dimension that we, certainly, that we need in certain areas. Alex Dyer 3.52pm. That's about all we have time for today, folks. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to the Herald Scotland, recorded on Wednesday the 9th of July 2020. Opinion by Alison Rowett, Senior Politics and Features Writer.
Is this a future Prime Minister we see before us? Tony Blair had education, education, education. Boris Johnson stood behind Get Brexit Done. And now the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, wants it known that he is all about jobs, jobs, jobs. While not the most imaginative slogan, it suits the frightened times. Tens of thousands of jobs have already gone as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, and this is just the start. That light at the end of the tunnel is a job loss express heading this way. People instinctively know it. If you want to know why pubs, restaurants and shops have not been overrun by punters rushing to spend, 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 it is because they're afraid. As anyone who lived through the late 1970s and early 80s can testify, they're right to be nervous. If you were to construct a cultural montage for that period, it would feature the Conservatives' Labour Isn't Working poster, complete with a long line of unemployed people, a clip of Mrs Thatcher at her hectoring worst, a scene from Boys from the Black Stuff, Giz a job, says Yossef Hughes, some shots of rioting, and the whole sequence overlaid with the special's ghost town. That was the snapshot. The longer term reality was a generation laid to waste and the winding back of the clock on British political culture. Government went from feeling a duty to look after the weakest to actively punishing the poor. Not UK PLC's finest hours and the effects are still evident today, particularly in Scotland. Any decent Chancellor would strain every sinew to build a shelter against such a storm. Thus far, Mr Sunak has consistently surpassed expectations. The Sporlow scheme has helped pay the wages of 9 million people. Mortgage and tax holidays, rebates, grants, special sectoral help. For a Tory Chancellor, he has made the radical left look like timid tightwads. Yesterday saw him delivering the next part of the recovery package. Despite Number 10's blethering about new deals, there was nothing here to transform society FTR style. But the targeted help for the 16 to 24 age group was significant. There was a rabbit out of the hat too, in the shape of half-price meals out. Brace yourselves, Pizza Express. Of course, he could have gone further, but as a package, this was practical and populist, smart and innovative, considered and caring. Perhaps the most significant moment came when he said, quote, For me, this has never been just a question of economics, but of values, unquote. Was this the new face of conservatism we saw before us? A future prime minister, maybe? It could go either way for him. He has not been shy in grabbing the glory, but if his plans do not produce results and furlough proves to be a waiting room for redundancy as many fear, Mr Sunak will bear a large part of the blame. Already, some Conservative MPs are becoming jittery over the ever-growing cost of this help. They want, in the words of senior backbencher Sir Edward Lee, to hear, quote, less about high-spending lefties like President Roosevelt and more about good Conservatives like Margaret Thatcher, unquote. But let us say most of the measures work. Some, like the youth support scheme, 
a version of which was brought in by Labour after the 2008 financial crash, are tried and tested. Mr Sunak would then be lauded as the Chancellor who put a down payment on the next election victory. A politician thus far untainted by the mistakes his colleagues in government made in handling the coronavirus crisis, he would be ideally placed to take over from a tired and discredited Boris Johnson. What seismic changes that could bring about in British politics? Or would it? It depends how one reads Mr Sunak and his meteoric rise thus far. To a great extent, he is just another off-the-peg Tory. Privately educated, philosophy, politics and economics at Oxford, career in banking, including time at Goldman Sachs, who were memorably described by writer Matt Taby as, quote, a great vampire squid wrapped around the face of humanity, relentlessly jamming its blood funnel into anything that smells like money, unquote. He was already rich when he married into silly money, courtesy of his billionaire father-in-law, N.R. Nariana Murthy. He won a safe seat, William Hague's old stamping ground in Richmond, Yorkshire, in 2015, and five years later he was Chancellor. But then there is the other side to Mr Sunak. Grandparents who came to the UK from East Africa. Parents who worked hard as a doctor and pharmacist. Proud to call himself British Indian, a Hindu. He's endearingly geeky, a Star Wars fan no less, and is invariably described by those who have worked with him as a nice sort. When his potential was first spotted, it used to be thought that he was missing the genes for empathy and relatability, but he's made up for that during the virus crisis. Even though he's a stranger to the dole queue, he made a lot of people relieved that they might not be joining it just yet. Before the pandemic hit, Mr Sunak was best known for replacing his party leader on the general election televised debate circuit. A touch nervous at first, he quickly came into his own. It was clear that fellow debater Nicola Sturgeon rated him. Player recognised player. Imagine what impact a Prime Minister Sunak might have on Scottish independence. Though he has insisted a second independence referendum was, quote, absolutely not our intention, unquote, it was once suggested that he thought England would be better off on its own a charge he denied. Keir Stammer's Labour has more to fear from a fresh Sunak administration than an already wobbly Johnson Premiership. Impressive as he has been to date, it may be wise to hold off on a big bet on Mr Sunak becoming PM just yet. He is, after all, a man who took the job of Chancellor knowing that number 10 would want to pull the strings. There is a long way to go before any of us begin to see the back of this crisis. New faces in the Tory party have been hailed before. I seem to recall Ruth Davidson was one such property, only to come to nothing. But keep an eye on that man Sunak just the same. You will not be alone. This article was by Alison Rowett. The Herald, Friday the 10th of July 2020, News. Business update. 200 jobs at risk as Argos delivery company to move Scottish base to England. £38 million support package for new firms. 
Bank Hires HBOS Veteran. This article is by Brian Donnelly. Unite Scotland has said XPO Logistics Distribution site at Eurocentral will transfer the work to Haywood in England with the potential loss of around 200 jobs. The warehouse and distribution site at Moss End provides distribution services for Argos and Sainsbury's. If the proposal goes ahead, there would be no workers left at the site by January 7, 2021, the union said. XPO Logistics intend to transfer volumes of work from its Eurocentral site to England starting in September. Kenny Jordan, Unite Regional Officer, said the news from XPO Logistics is a bitter blow to the workforce of around 200. The timescales and timing of this announcement comes as a shock because the Moss End site based at Eurocentral has been outperforming other distribution sites for some time now. Unite will exhaust every avenue to retain these jobs because there is no logical business reason for this decision and our members will have every support possible from their trade union. XPO Logistics said the decision was made by its customer and added in a statement, As our customer works to bring the Sainsbury's and Argos business closer together, we will assist them on their review of operations at Moss End. We will be providing our colleagues with ongoing support during this period of change. The Scottish Government has unveiled a £38 million package of support for new firms. Economy Secretary Fiona Hislop announced the plans at the Daily Coronavirus Briefing, saying they include £3 million of grants of up to £50,000 for start-ups deemed to have the most potential for growth. She also announced £25 million for a new early-stage growth fund, which involves companies competing for up to £300,000 in grants and investment, with applications open on July the 20th. Ms Hislop said panels will be formed to choose the recipients of the funding, adding it will be a combination of identifying potential but also inviting those companies in those areas. I think that competitive edge will also make sure that challenge that we're presenting will provide best opportunities for growth and jobs in these sectors. A total of £10 million will also be given to Scottish Enterprise to support funds from the Scottish National Investment Bank, which are aimed at topping up private sector investment in business to as much as 50%. Ms Hislop also told the briefing that the funding, which will be allocated by Scottish Enterprise and its private sector partners, was allocated as part of a £230 million stimulus package from the Scottish Government last month. She said the package is another example of how we're tailoring our support to best suit Scotland's economic needs with schemes that are unique to Scotland. Metrobank has appointed a banking veteran as Chief Risk Officer. Richard Lees will join the company early next year, reporting to Chief Executive Daniel Frumkling. A veteran of the cooperative bank, Lloyds and HBOS, Mr Lee said Metrobank has proven itself as a challenger bank committed to bringing something different to banking and really delivering for its customers and communities. I'm really looking forward to joining the team. This article is by Brian Donnelly. Herald Scotland, recorded on Friday 10th of July 2020. Arts and Entertainments. Books, Alexander McCall Smith on Reading in a Time of Quiet, by Herald Magazine. Like many others, I have a pile of books waiting to be read. In fact, now that I come to think of it, I have more than one pile of books. I have one in the bedside table, where most people keep their unread books, but I also have two in my study, one in a chair and another in a table. I suppose I should also count the temporary pile near the window, but that is the stack waiting to go to the charity shop. 
that I fear may be difficult to reduce in the short term. Charity shops are said to be dreading the return of normal opening as a positive deluge of stored up donations threatens to engulf them. Barriers have been erected, we are told, and long-suffering staff are steadying themselves to turn away three months' worth of paperback novels, out-of-date guides to Finland, and higher essay English study notes. That, of course, is before they are offered last year's political memoirs and football biographies. By strange coincidence, when our life changed in March and we entered this period of social isolation, I happened to have just completed a reorganisation of the books in the house. This was long overdue, as over the years I'd placed books according to what might charitably be called a chronological system. This involved putting the most recently acquired books in the front and leaving older books at the back. As a result, books in very different subjects sat next to one another on the shelf and the only method of locating them would be visual memory. I'm sure I saw that book somewhere in that shelf, or the recollection of when the book came into the house. Neither of these ever worked very well, and as a consequence I came to be the owner of a large number of books that I had forgotten about. My reorganisation, carried out by a particularly competent person who agreed to take on the task for me, transformed my personal collection. Not only were books shelved according to subject, but within the classifications they were arranged alphabetically according to the author. This meant that now if I need to find a book in the social practices of baboons, I know exactly where it is. And I do have such a book as it happens. In fact, I see that I have two. I can also lay my hands on my Dictionary of Australian Slang and Colloquialisms, a very vivid book, or not far from that on the shelf, my concise Scots Dictionary. No longer do I have to spend half an hour searching for the biography of King Zog of Albania that I know I possess. There it is, next to the other memoirs of less colourful lives. As the result of this reorganisation, I discovered not a few books I had forgotten about or had never got round to reading. As isolation began, I had embarked on reading one of these recently surfaced books, which happened to be about monasticism and what the monastic traditions of sanctuary and quiet can do for us in our increasingly busy world or formerly increasingly busy world, because just as I started this book, our world slowed down perceptibly. Traffic noise disappeared, the sky, once crisscrossed by vapour trails, became inhabited only by natural clouds, delicate birdsong filled the air, as if suddenly birds felt they no longer had to shout to make themselves heard. People walked or cycled, they stopped their headlong rush, they paused to take a breath. Living in the future was replaced by living now, Time was arrested. It was just the right time to read about monasticism, that curiously voluntary withdrawal from the world in pursuit of spirituality. That book was quickly followed by another on the same subject that I found in my newly ordered shelves. This was Patrick Lee Fermer's A Time to Keep Silence. Lee Fermer was a remarkable writer whose books about his famous walk across Europe before the Second World War are justly celebrated. In A Time to Keep Silence, he describes visits he made to monasteries in France and elsewhere in the early 1950s. He writes at some length about the implications of suddenly finding time in the day to read, to meditate, to stay still. It helped, and it also set the tone for my reading over the next few months of this unusual period. I found that I had no appetite for anything fast-paced or exciting. I found that I wanted to read books where there was a strong authorial voice saying something about what counted in life. In particular, I turned to poetry, and to books about poetry. 
Reading poetry requires an initial quietness in the mind. When you sit down with a poet, you're being addressed in a way that is intimate and direct. The poetic voice is a very personal one. Somebody is talking to you is saying, listen, this is how I feel. Then Zoom came along. Zoom meant that we could see and talk to friends, but also meant that people could keep book clubs going in spite of not being able to meet others physically. I do not belong to a book club, but I started to have regular virtual meetings with four friends in which we discussed two or three poems for the occasion. One of these friends happened to be a professor of literature and an expert in 19th century poetry. That helped. But the net has been cast wide, and we have included contemporary poets in our discussions. At our last meeting, we looked at Thomas Gray's Elegy. Brackets, I last read that when I was 16, close brackets. But we also spent a very happy half hour talking about Edwin Morgan's King Billy and Ian Crichton Smith's You Lived in Glasgow. Both of these poems contain beautiful and arresting lines. I've always been struck by Morgan's haunting opening to the King Billy poem. Grey over Ridgery, the clouds piled up. One cannot survive on a diet of poetry, of course, just as one cannot exclusively on a diet of biography or architectural history. But I did find myself concentrating in books that ask what one might call profound questions, the sort of questions that we are often too busy to address with the attention they deserve. I learned about subjects I needed to know more about. I had a sense of catching up with myself. I realised I'd been too busy, too distracted to read things I needed to read. These last few months have taught me a lesson. I hope I remember it. The Geometry of Holding Hands, an Isabel Dalhousie novel by Alexander McCall Smith is published this month in hardback, brackets, Little Brown, £18.99, close brackets. The second worst restaurant in France is available now on paperback, brackets, Polygon, £8.99, close brackets, by Herald Magazine. Recorded from the Herald, 10th of July 2020. Celtic's pre-season matches to be shown on Premier Sports as dates of clashes are revealed. Aidan Smith Celtic's pre-season matches will be shown live on Premier Sports. The Hoops are set to travel to France to face off against Nice, Lyon and PSG. Premier Sports said, Announced today, Premier Sports will broadcast each of Celtic's pre-season friendlies from France this July as the champions prepare for the beginning of the 2020-2021 Scottish Premiership campaign. This will be the first opportunity for Celtic fans to watch their team in action since the COVID-19 pandemic ended their 1920 season in March. Reigning Scottish Premiership champions Celtic will start their pre-season in France, challenging a selection of French clubs. Beginning on July 16th, Celtic will first face Nice at 5.15pm, Lyon on July 18th at 7.45pm, before playing current French league champions PSG at the Parc des Princes at 6pm on Tuesday July 21st. Premier Sports is the home for Scottish knockout football and will broadcast the Scottish Cup and Betfred Cup in the 2020-2021 season. Premier Sports customers will also be able to watch Celtic start their European campaign next month with coverage confirmed for Celtic's first three qualifiers. In addition, subscribers will see the remainder of the Serie A and La Liga seasons as part of the Premier Sports bundle on Sky Virgin TV and the Premier Player. You are listening to The Hell Scotland recorded on Friday the 10th of July 2020. Enjoy the praise, Rishi. It's unlikely to last. An opinion article by Rebecca McQuillian, 
Senior Features Writer. No one likes a doom-monger, so I apologise for what I'm about to say. Imagine it's February 2021. The UK has been hit by a tidal wave of redundancies, pushing unemployment to levels not seen since Alveda's own pet was on the telly. At the same time, thanks to the Christmas party season, the dreaded second wave of coronavirus is upon us. And to capital, the UK government has just pulled us out of the European Union. Hopefully this bleak forecast is wrong. Hopefully there will be a mere trickle of redundancies as employers embrace the Chancellor's offer of £1,000 to keep on furloughed workers. Hopefully the test and protect scheme will be operating so swimmingly that outbreaks of Covid will be swiftly snuffed out. And maybe all those dire prognostications about Brexit will have come to naught and the UK will have cut itself free from all obligations to Europe but kept all the benefits. Maybe, but probably not. There is the likelihood of a grim winter ahead. A winter to make our current celebratory midsummer mood seem madly misplaced. A winter in which economic hardship is compounded by the Covid crisis and a self-inflicted economic shock. Set against that looming threat, Rishi Sunak's lavish mini-budget has fallen short. The trouble is that it's almost impossible to imagine what package of measures any Chancellor could offer that would seem sufficient to the potential scale of the challenge ahead. There are elements that the Treasury has got right. Many businesses have warmly welcomed the hefty VAT cut for the hospitality sector. The Kickstart Work Placement Scheme for Young People is also, in principle, a progressive policy. But while the Chancellor may be enjoying the good opinion of several newspapers, there is an artificiality as well as a whiff of danger for him in all this fawning approval. The former Lib Dem leader, Nick Clegg, would recognise it. Like Sunak, Clegg was the toast of journalists in April 2010, mid-economic crisis, but by the winter he was derided. Clegg's sin was to break his key manifesto promise. The danger for Sunak is that all his lavish spending fails to preserve jobs. Civil servants don't demur on flagship government policies unless they have serious misgivings, so it's ominous for the Chancellor that Jim Harrah, HM Co- uh, Revenue and Customs top official, wrote to him saying he was unable to conclude that the jobs retention bonus represents value for money. The plan entitles firms to a grand in their pocket for every furloughed worker retained for three months after the furlough scheme ends. But officials don't know how many jobs it will save. Mr Harrow expressed similar concerns about the Chancellor's 50% meal deal plan for August. The letter appears to be a political distancing measure. Between the lines it reads, On your head be it, Minister. One can understand the unease. The jobs retention bonus is fraught with the potential for unintended consequences. Firms will get the money even if they had no intention of laying off furloughed staff. It appears to do nothing to stop firms employing furloughed staff until the end of January 
pocketing the cash and then making them redundant in February. It provides them with no incentive to keep on staff who haven't been furloughed. Perhaps above all though, it's doubtful that the payment is enough to make companies retain staff, given that the average wage is £530 a week. The National Institute for Economic and Social Research calls the measure badly timed and warns it could rapidly increase unemployment as employers who had hoped the furlough scheme would be extended decide to make staff redundant. Two million or more unemployed remains an alarmingly real possibility. Just yesterday, John Lewis and Boots announced 5,300 job losses between them while First Group, the Aberdeen-based rail and bus company, has warned over its ability to continue as a going concern. The plan to guarantee those aged 16 to 24 on universal credit a six-month work placement, meanwhile, shows a desire to prevent the alarming rise in youth unemployment that followed the financial crash 10 years ago. But it exposes the government's business-as-usual approach since the jobs are likely to be low-paid and part-time. It's unclear what long-term benefits it offers. As for the 3 million excluded from any support, including the newly self-employed and PAYE freelancers, Mr Sunak's plan offers nothing. And the mini-budget just tries to address the immediate economic crisis. As opposition parties pointed out, This plan does nothing to tackle child poverty. As for the so-called green recovery, the Chancellor's £2 billion for home energy efficiency in England is a genuinely worthwhile investment. But where are the measures to support renewables, particularly the development of novel technologies? Where are the measures to promote a sustainable transport system? We have to hope it's still to come. The Scottish Government, for its part, has been complaining that only £21 million of the £800 million in consequentials for Scotland is new money. But this is contested by the Independent Institute of Fiscal Studies. The spat is arguably a distraction anyway. The Chancellor has spent generously, but given the uncharted depth of the recession that's upon us and the likelihood of further trauma to come, no level of spend would be widely accepted as sufficient. That said, it matters enormously how the money we do have is spent. That's why Mr Sunak's mini-budget may come to be viewed in time as a missed opportunity. Worse than that, however, is Brexit, because it is an entirely deliberate complication that is set to hit the UK's trade with the UK at the worst possible moment. The Brexiteer dream of frictionless trade in goods and services, membership of every EU institution we consider useful and the right to decide what happens to every fish in British waters was always a mirage. Michel Barnier has pointed to significant differences remaining between the two sides. Whatever comes out of it will be worse for UK companies than what we have at present we may even end up without a comprehensive trade deal. 
And so businesses already fighting for their lives must brace themselves for their government deliberately disadvantaging them in trade too. Rishi Sunak had better enjoy the public 